0: Refine Labs. This is State of Demand
1: Gen. Quick announcement before we get into the agenda, which I'm really excited about. A couple of concepts that I've never talked about publicly, so this should be fun. But first off, I put this out announcement a couple of times, but again, we are hiring here at Refine Labs. We have 15 open positions open: directors of demand gen, performance marketing managers, designers, copywriters a couple other positions. So if you're interested in learning more, feel free to visit the LinkedIn page or send one of us a DM. We'd love, to, uh, we'd love to chat about whether or not you you might wanna join Refine Labs. So now moving into the agenda, the first topic we got here is titled how to control the flow of demand. And so before we talk about how to control it, I think it's important to take a little bit of a step back And just talk about how demand flow works. So the way that it works, we'll use an easy example of toothpaste. So there was a time when nobody knew that they needed to use toothpaste or nobody wanted to use toothpaste. And at some point, a company went out to all these people that were unaware that there was a solution and educated them that... If you use toothpaste, your like teeth won't get yellow or you won't get cavities or you won't whatever those things are. And then there was demand created for toothpaste. And over time, more people did that. And so when we think about it, there's a group of buyers out there that would fit for it. And over time, they move into buying cycle. Once demand is created for them, they move into buying cycles where then they evaluate and consider purchasing something. Pretty simple concept. And so, if there's no demand and there's no demand being created for something like the toothpaste example, then nobody's going to move into a buying cycle. Now, when we think about the things that create demand, that initiate the action, that educate someone, that then have them move into a buying cycle, if we look at B2B go to market strategies from 2011, the main ways that people would move through that process are conferences, analyst firms. A lot of it was the responsibility of the salesperson. The field salespeople, if you remember this, had to go out there and basically create demand out of nowhere. Because marketing didn't have the capabilities to identify and target people in the way that they can now. And buyers didn't have the access to the information that they they do now. And so that's what it looked like for demand creation in 2011 in 2021 we've been through this but we know that demand creation is happening mainly through word of mouth organic social and content that just gets distributed over the internet that creates a spark where somebody then starts moving with demand created to consider whether or not they move into a buying cycle now let's talk about how to control the demand flow because this is what you want. This is the most advantageous position to be in as a company where you have control over the demand flow. When you have control over the demand flow, you are basically evangelizing the category and are viewed as the category leader. And so there are two variables that matter here. Out of all of the people that are not in buying cycles, what percentage of those people see you as the preferred vendor or the leader? If it's 5% or if it's 95%, there are differences because once they move into a buying cycle, the preferred vendor has a huge advantage from there on. The The company who created the demand has a massive advantage in actually winning that business. The second one is controlling the magnitude of the flow of buyers from the pool into buying cycles. And if you're able to control both of those numbers, like imagine you're at 5% of the market sees you as the leader, and 100 buyers per month are moving into buying cycles. And then over time, you figure out how to make that 5%, 25% of buyers that are now moving into buying cycles see you as the preferred brand. And instead of 100 accounts moving into buying cycles per month, there's 200. And there's a big effect in that. You go from having being 5 out of 100 to... Let me see if I can do the math here set myself up for this. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even going to try. So when you have those two variables to play with, it gives you a really interesting sense about how you could overall control the demand flow. I don't think that companies think about either of these metrics at all. I don't even think about think companies consider this concept at all. And so, what happens for a company that isn't thinking about this is that they're just sitting at the bottom of the funnel, just trying to capture demand, fighting over the small amount of people that are actively buying, where the people that are moving into buying cycles do not see them as a preferred vendor. And they're going to lose a lot of those opportunities. And it becomes very expensive to do that over time. And you, as a business, have no control over your growth. Somebody else is creating the demand. And you are going to grow at a rate that's in line with the category or lower. If you're able to figure out how to create demand, you take control over that flow, which is the most advantageous position that I think that you could be in. Let's pause there and see if people have any questions on this.
2: Well, I know beforehand, um, Joshua emailed in a question on sort of the topic of controlling the flow of demand. Mm -hmm. So. Why don't I bring you on, Joshua? You can talk through what you sent in. And then if any of you all have some other questions, drop them in the chat and I'll bring you on after Joshua. Hey, Joshua, there. you're on demand gen live. What is your question?
3: Thanks. <laughs> so basically the question is, what if you have too much of the magnitude you were talking about? Like too too many leads for what you can, your operations can. Like, like not just leads, but I mean like qualified opportunities um, where, you know, it, and I guess it, I'm in that sort of the situation where do you kind of try to hit the brakes on generating demand? Do you just try to work uh, more with operations to, to help? Um, because it, it kind of is it leads sometimes to like customer success issues and, and experience because it's like I, I, I'm part of the onboarding as well. Within my role. So I I don't know. Like I guess it's more like... I don't know if there's even
1: an answer to it, but I guess there maybe is ways of approaching it. I I was curious. Um, Yeah. So what you're describing here is basically a supply and demand issue, right? There's more demand than you can supply. And so in those supply and demand issues, you have a couple of options. You figure out ways to be able to provide the amount of supply that the amount of demand is, You can adjust the price relative to the supply to slow down demand, or you can, you can just be like, Hey, we're, we're busy. Come back to us when we're ready. The thing that I want to make clear here is that you don't stop generating demand because the second that you stop the slow degradation of the amount of people that see you as the preferred vendor in the future. And so even if you need to say, Hey, we got too many customers. We're not gonna be able to work with you for the next three months. I think it's a good trade-off to continue to create demand in the market. And then oh there's obviously goodness. some operational things that you need to work through to figure out how to scale through.
3: Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I, I, I've tried to figure out how to change the way that I interact with accounts because, you know, in the times when you're at a high, you have high volume of opportunities, but you have low supply. Maybe they're, essentially trying to take more of a consultative position saying, you know, just trying to learn about the account more during that period and trying to say, you know, I have to slow down now, but potentially later we can move faster. And yeah, there's not a lot you can do from my position. I don't
1: think it's more, it's people above me that have to figure that out. Yeah. I'd be working through operationally how we can service more the demand or the price is a really interesting lever as well. Yeah. That's what I would recommend. Probably the best position to be in, if you know what I'm saying.
2: Good problem to have, as they say. Thanks, Joshua. I have a few other questions, but uh, not on this particular topic. Anything else come to mind as you were talking through Jonathan's question on this? Or
1: I think we're good on this topic. We'll talk more about it in the, in the coming weeks.
2: Yeah. Let's sneak in a couple of questions. Yeah, I'm down to
1: roll into questions.
2: All right. All right. Michelle, it's your turn. I'm gonna bring you on for your podcast question, and then Bob, I'll uh, bring you on after for the one you submitted in advance, and then we can wander back to the agenda. Michelle, you're on. Hey,
4: Michelle, hi. Make my name easier this time.
2: I know. Thank <laughs> you. Much
5: appreciated.
4: So, um, Chris, I was DMing Megan on, on this on LinkedIn, but it didn't flow last week with your content, so I didn't ask it. But I'm curious about um, uh, monetizing your podcast. I noticed I've never heard an ad run on your podcast. And what are your thoughts on that for generating exposure, more, you know, increased revenue? What are your thoughts?
1: So this is entirely dependent on the business model of the people that own the podcast, right? And so for some companies the podcast is a revenue stream. They want to sell ads on it. Like Mm -hmm. that's a a monetization model. It's a monetization model that we don't choose to do because one, marketers, and we talk to other marketers and I want to be vendor agnostic. And so that's one that we don't support it. Two, we don't need the money to do that. We can go go make our money in a different way. So I don't need $2,000 to sponsor the podcast. Third is that... When you put ads on a podcast, you decrease attention. People leave. People stop tuning into them. I get annoyed when there are ads on podcasts that I listen to. And so for all of those reasons, I just value the people's attention way more than I value a podcast sponsorship. And so that's how I view it because that's how we've decided to structure the business is that we don't need to monetize the podcast. We monetize in other ways. And so that's just, it's a strategic choice. Both can work and I clearly both do work for people. Okay. Thank
0: um,
1: you. Yeah. So are you, did you have a particular question about like your business's podcast or your own podcast? Do you want to go deeper in on this?
4: Well, you know, I, I've had had—I've been approached to, um, for advertising, but I don't know if I want to go that route. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it is like a kind of easy revenue stream. So mm-hmm. I just didn't know... You know i agree i don't mind if they're in the very beginning of the very am because i always like jump into the podcast yeah. like i always fast forward 15 15 15 15 until um, the meat but i you know if they're making a few thousand off that podcast by doing that to me that would be in my in my situation that would be worth it but i was just yeah. curious about your your thoughts okay
1: yeah i mean it's not good or bad it's just right. whether it's good for you right so given your like what you just told me maybe you should try it
2: And what I would just add to that too, Michelle, is think about whomever the advertiser is and who your listeners are, right? So like if you were trying to think of a filter of like, hey, I think I'm open to doing this. This would be a nice revenue stream. What's going to be the right advertiser that will be a good fit? It's just thinking through like, if you're the listener of your podcast and you heard this advertiser, how would that make you feel, right? So put yourself in your listener's shoes and, and... I would let that guide whether this particular advertiser is the right one or not, but it's also totally cool to just do it for the money for the record.
4: <laughs> There's also the people that want to jump on your audience, like your, your own competition want you to plug them. Sure. They'll pay for it. I had that. I've had been approached for that, but you know, obviously I don't, I don't think Chris wants to advertise any other demand gen podcasts out there. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
6: Good
2: luck, Michelle. Cool. Let me Thank know, you. Yeah, let me know how it lands. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. I mean, some more questions are popping up. Can I keep going? Yeah, I... let's roll. All right. Arthur, I want to bring you on next. Um, I see you on video too. You are on Demand Gen Live. Ask your question.
7: Amazing. Thank you, Megan. Chris, a uh, huge fan of the show. First time caller, I guess. Awesome. A Great listener. to have you here. Thank you. Thank um, you. So yeah, I wanted to go a little hypothetical here. If you were to recruit one of the top sales reps internally to the marketing team and either create like a hypothetical hybrid role for them or slot them into an existing role, where would you potentially put that sales rep? And just for a little context, this happened to me at my company, so I can tell you where I ended up. But I was just curious to hear your, your thoughts. Who
1: are you selling to? Um, Directors of Dimension, I guess. So I would put this role as a community person. They'd be in all of the communities, in all of the different groups. They would be engaging on social. They would be present. They would be out there helping a bunch of people. They potentially want to think about responding to comments on ads. If the comments are, if you're running ads where comments are relevant, some channels they're spam and not. consider. Uh, high intent live chat, like those are some of the things that I would think about doing. Like it's one to one conversation with people, just in a way more scalable way than how people do sales <laughs> right now. That's what I would do. <laughs> what do you think? What, what do you uh, do? You have something in mind? Do you want to talk through?
7: Um, yeah, I can tell you where I ended up. So we ended up creating like a a field marketing role, but you hit the nail on the head. A lot of it is it's almost in between partnerships and demand gen. And I'm trying to... I was already an active member in a lot of these communities. So they basically noticed that and were like, keep going. And with all your talk of the dark funnel and all of that, I was curious to hear where you would potentially slot this person. But yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's that's kind of what this role was was created for.
1: Nice. Yeah, I think that's smart. Cool. I like
2: that. So maybe that wasn't a hypothetical. <laughs> a great question. <laughs> Uh, One of my favorites, Anna, I'm bringing you on the show. She's got a really good one for you, Chris. I think you're going to like this.
8: I hope you will. All right. So my question is around influencer marketing because it has become a really hot topic among my circles and with the startups that I work with. And I'm curious if you have created some kind of system Or approach for influencers. And by influencer, I mean, because influencers can be all over the place, right? They could be like people that speak at conferences, or they can be on pod, they can have their podcasts or on social media. And I even heard of some companies that offer these podcast tours. You pay them some money, and then they connect you to like very specific niche podcasts where maybe they have relationships. So it's kind of almost acting like a PR. specific to podcasting, which is interesting. So um, I was just going to do it myself since I have some experience with podcasting myself, but what's your take? Do you have a systematic approach or thoughts on this?
1: Specific to podcasters generally?
8: Generally influencer marketing and podcast is just one area. Yeah.
1: It's funny you asked the question I saw today on LinkedIn. I was just like in the wild. I saw the first very clear, like B2C implementation of influencer marketing on LinkedIn today through Tim Tebow with some partner with some organic food. It was it was interesting. Um, i had never seen that on LinkedIn before, but it was a B2C brand that was driving that through Tim Tebow onto LinkedIn, who has a lot of awareness and engagement there. So that was, it was just interesting to see that you asked the question when it comes to influencer marketing, one point, like, yeah, like somebody could have a podcast or they could speak at conferences, but an interesting thing to think about is that everyone can influence things. And as it developed, when I was doing this in 2016, 17 on Instagram, the best people that made the most impact for the least cost were what people called micro influencers that had less than 10,000 followers that had an engaged audience that sometimes you just give them a free blanket and they'll post about it a hundred times.
8: They're like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, (laughs)
1: like stuff like that. And so it's just something interesting for people to think about because they think influence and they think they got to go get Tim Tebow or Dave Gerhardt or somebody. And there's a, a lot of people that would be able to do it. So when I think about like the ways that you could do quote unquote influencer marketing, like uh, content collaboration is a like clear and easy one that I think a lot of companies do right now. So you have content collaboration, there's potential event marketing. I think there's a play for user generated content. So, like, how do you take people that already use your product and let and then and they already create content and let them create content about your product? So, I think there's a a really authentic play there. I don't think the like pay to play, pay to post type of th- game is going to play in B two B. I don't see that is how it's going to. I just think it's to a place where it's so inauthentic that I think B two B brands would stay away from there but when it comes to a like a system around it no we don't have one it's opportunistic build a lot of relationships always find opportunities to collaborate with people we have the podcast right so there's like if you think about us we're doing influencer marketing all the time without really thinking about it it's just ingrained in the strategy
8: yeah like with you you doing like the every couple of weeks with Dave Gerhart right mhm then you're able to tap into his audience and he taps into your audience and you kind of play off of each other in that way. And it's, it's an event, Mm -hmm. right? So that's event marketing. That's helpful. And the micro influencers is important too, because it's, it's like people that have 5,000 to 10,000 followers is great. If they're targeting the same people that you are targeting and after the same Mm -hmm. mission or message, that you mm-hmm.
1: are so it's actually surprising that you say it's a, like a hot topic with the companies that you work with because very few companies that i interact with are even considering doing this in a like in a robust program type of way
8: that's because I propose it because I, I'm the one that kind of drives the strategy because they bring me on to help them prioritize their channels. Mm-hmm. And so I have a say, I don't think they would come to me. I don't know, Yeah. but chances are they would not be as likely to come to me and say, Hey, I'm a B2B SaaS startup. Can you help me with my influence, my marketing influencer strategy?
1: Mm-hmm.
8: So, yeah.
1: Companies are going to really struggle with it because the best way to do this is non-transactional, which then foregoes tracking. And that's why they won't do it. So what they'll do is they won't do influence, they'll do affiliate marketing, not influencer marketing with some type of like code or link or something dumb where, like, in order for somebody to get credit for their impact, somebody needs to go direct response and do that right now for 50K CD SAS or something. And so that's why a lot of the companies that I interact with don't do that and even if you like use self reported attribution and other things it's probably not going to be the one that comes up like oh you know that person jimmy one time posted about that thing that was what i that's how i heard about you with this type of work i feel like b2c companies buy into it a lot and because they don't think as transactionally as enterprise saas organizations but yeah
8: Yeah, I I just want to say that, like, I personally know it works because with having a podcast, you probably tried it too, is in order to get more people to listen without having ads, you have to get on other people's podcasts. It's the same strategy. Then they hear you and they go and listen to your podcast and then your reach increases. That's kind of how to track it, right? Your reach increases for the show And then your website visits probably increase. And then your LinkedIn posts, because now they're following you on LinkedIn. I mean, it's all interrelated.
1: It's a very logical way of looking at it, but that is not how executives of software as a service companies look at it. (laughs) It's just not. They're like looking for their attribution model inside of Visible to say, you know, Jimmy, the influencer drove this deal. And it's just the wrong way of looking at it. It's not that the measurement's broken. It's the mindset of, what the measurement should do is what's broken. Yeah. We're working on some things to solve this that honestly just involve like a good dose of common sense.
8: Yeah,
2: awesome. Well, I'll report back.
1: Cool, yeah, let me know how it goes.
2: Great dialogue, thanks for coming on. Wouldn't be Demand Gen Live without Bob. I'm gonna squeeze in two more (laughs) questions and then we can get back to the agenda. What's up, Bob?
1: Bob, yo. How you guys doing? Doing great. Good to see you.
0: Great. So I had, a, I had a question I was hoping you could help me with for um, calculating uh, CAC payback. Essentially, with our upfront contract values, they're very low margin because we're reselling OEM equipment in order to mm-hmm. enable our telehealth services on the backside where it's a professional service. And so our annual contract values is a you know, professional services margin, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of our upfront contract value, If I use the total contract value, I just think it's kind of deceiving towards like a marketing CAC payback versus just using the margin that we're making from those sales. And using the margin alone, we have a six-month CAC payback right now on a 12-month look back. Mm -hmm. So for the past year on all the advertising spend, generated a six-month CAC payback on the margin. If I use the total contract value on the upfront contracts, then it would be like a month or yep. less. It's just deceiving to me because it's not revenue. It's not, it's not profit. I wanted to get your take on that. If I add in the, once I add in like an estimated annual for the contracts we've signed, the CAC payback's like two months as of right now. So it's like, seems like a winner to me based off of what you've said in the past. I'm just trying to get my ducks in a row in order to justify uh, allocating more budget towards this like year long test we've been running.
1: Yeah, that's a winner if the calculations are all like what you just said is correct, it's a winner, right? So the reason that companies use CAC payback, not margin is because software company gross margins are 80 plus. And so it's like, it's different than some companies that are making, you know, 25% margin. It's a, it's a different type of calculation, which is why things like professional services organizations and other things like that don't think about it in terms of CAC payback.
0: So how would I, would I present it differently then? So it, resonates better with the executives? Is there another measurement you're familiar with? Or should I just stick with kind of what I'm, how I'm presenting it?
1: So if you plan on having this customer be recurring for an extended period of time after this, like the low margin piece is over with, then I think that right. that CAC payback is a good way to look at it. Because once it's paid back, all it is is profit less operating expenses. Right. So um, I think that's a good way to look at it. Another way that you could frame it up is just how much it's costing you to get a customer, which could help people understand. So it's like, look, we're a whatever, a two-month CAC payback on a 50-take deal. I'll just like guess here. Like our, our total customer acquisition or our marketing advertising customer acquisition cost is $7,500 to get a customer that's going to pay us $50,000 in the first year. And we expect at least 250 k lifetime value for 7 dollars how many customers would you like? <laughs> like, that, that's a good way to frame it up, too. It makes it more straightforward so people understand.
0: Okay. Yeah, certainly appreciate it. Just wanted you to kind of check my math. So appreciate your guidance on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, those are just for other people, those are really great numbers.
0: I had one other thing to share with you. Okay. Was that this I posted on LinkedIn today, but this is the first month our uh, marketing sourced revenue is going to be 50% of our of our total contract. So marketing source versus sales source, 50-50 this month. It's been quite wow. the journey, Bob. Yeah, I mean, it's small <laughs> potatoes because, you know, we're, we're just dabbling with small dollar amounts on a monthly basis as a test. But I think we finally got over the uh, the proof point.
1: But still, I remember a year ago working through Google Analytics with these you. come a long way. Uh, it's, <laughs> I'm, it's awesome. I'm, I'm like really happy that that's, that's going still on. Getting,
0: I'm still getting help on Google Analytics from Jess. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> appreciate
1: yeah, I mean keep it going now that you have efficacy the next step is figuring out how to get get more scale out of it while keeping efficiencies
0: about the same all right perfect now appreciate your input thank you cool good to see you
2: it just warms my heart that Bob and Jess are teaming up behind the scenes you met on BGL or I think you did anyway Hannah you're up next you had a great question I'm bringing you on Demand Gen live hey
9: hey hey Hi Chris, hi Megan. Hey, it's Hannah. My first time here.
5: <laughs> good to have so, you here.
9: I like that you have like open questions, not related to the agenda in this point, so, <laughs> good to know. So my question is uh, how to plan for demand generation, uh, especially in a market where companies are avoiding to buy any solution because for instance, my my case is that I'm working for a compliance software company. And uh, so companies are, uh, we, we learned through some months now that uh, companies are trying to avoid any solution, that they are not going with us and neither with our competitors, um, just waiting for, well, regulators and uh, actually countries to... to enforce more the, the, the rules mm-hmm. and then to take uh, the, the, the chance to, to buy any of, of the products in the market. So this is something that we are struggling to well, how to develop uh, a, a demand generation in that, uh, in that scenario because, well, yeah. So this yeah. is one and the next one is uh, a bit more operation related. Yeah, let's handle-
1: is Let's handle this one first, because if okay. by the time I finish my answer, I'll forget the other questions. Go and go. So I think what you need to tease out here, because this can e- easily be a false negative or false positive. I'm not exactly sure which one in this instance, but where people tell you that they don't want to buy it, but they're just telling you because they are not interested in talking to you right now about buying it, and so it's understanding: does the market really not want this? Or is the market not educated enough to understand why they need this? That's a decision I think that you, like some data you all need to pull together. If the market truly doesn't want it, there's no sense in doing anything. Trying to sell a product that nobody wants is is just like not a, not a good uh, strategy. And so figuring out that component would give you the answer. And so if people don't want it, then you're gonna have to wait till they do, or you're gonna wanna find a different product, right? But if they just need to be educated, then you need to understand deeply what they need to understand. If you think about from Refine Labs perspective, like there was nobody out there that wanted what we were trying to offer. Nobody even knew what we were talking about. And over two years have been able to communicate broadly to a market so that they, people use our terms, high intent leads other things that you know create demand versus capture demand, all the terms that we use people know now because we've spent a lot of time educating them. And so that's the main decision that I think you need to get an answer to.
9: Great, great, Chris, thank you. And yeah, we've been struggling with that. And uh, the next one, I don't know if you tackled this before, I believe people have asked you, um, Do you have a script for every content creation show, meetup, podcast, call that you do? How does it work? And uh, when things well, you have this this moment now that people ask questions and then it goes quite off the agenda. (laughs) And how to come back? That's that's my question.
1: Yeah. So zero script. If I'm doing a keynote, I got a couple bullets. Couple bullet points to make sure that I hit the couple points that I'm on when I'm doing demand live. I have the, you know, I have the agenda here, and then I write a couple of notes ten minutes before I come in here of just some points that I want to hit on. But I believe that because we create content so frequently, that scripting it would actually have a negative outcome, not a positive outcome. That not scripting, scripting it allows me to go into directions that I've not communicated before, or try and explain things in ways that I haven't before. So it creates like a free flowing way to communicate so that's my personal preference when people like try and have me come to a like podcast prep call so that they can prepare themselves to ask me questions i'm like do your own prep one i don't want to spend 15 minutes of time to do work that you can do on your own and then when people send me like a list of questions or things in advance i prefer not to read them like they're in my inbox and i just pass by it because I feel like my answers actually come off more authentic and they're better when I don't know what's going to be asked. And so that's, a, that's unique, right? Like So the things that I just laid out are, I would say that a majority, 90 plus percent of people fall in the other camp. They want to know the questions. They want to have the prep call. They, they want to do all those things. But people that do it frequently, that understand what they're talking about and are really into content creation, don't want to waste 15 to 30 minutes to do a prep call or look through questions.
2: One thing I would add for you, Hannah, is depending upon who you're working with and who is delivering the content or delivering the messaging, I would ask them what level of preparation that they would feel comfortable having so that they are confident in whatever they're doing, right? Everybody is different. Some people Mm -hmm. just need some bullets. Some people are better off the cuff. Some people would want to spend more time writing out more like long form talking points, potentially a script. So just remember what your end goal is, is creating great content, understand the people that are going to be doing it and what they need to deliver the output that you want. And so I don't know if there's like a one size fits all answer here, but that's how I would think about it. Cause there are a lot of variables. There a lot mm-hmm. of different types of people. So hopefully that's helpful.
1: Totally. Yeah. I was answering for, I thought the question was about my process. So that's my process, but totally echo Megan. Like it's, People run 100% scripted videos and do great. Other people completely wing it, anything in between. So it just depends on what works for you.
9: Thank you.
2: Thank you, guys. Very helpful. Thanks, Hannah. Hey, nice Hannah. having you on. All right. Let's go back to the agenda. Which of the yeah. other topics is, uh, is trickle back. in your name? yeah.
1: We're going to talk through the the three levels of intent. And this is probably going to be a... An unexpected kind of like track that I'm going on here because it's way different than the messaging of the technology vendors and the analyst firms that get paid by the technology vendors and all that different stuff. And so when I think about the three levels of intent, the reason that it's important is because outside of firmographic fit, the level of intent that someone has when you start an opportunity with them is the number one factor to whether or not they become a customer has the most impact on close rates and conversion rates throughout the funnel for sure. And the reason, the way that you can look at that is you can literally look at your lead sources and then you can sort them by win rates or lead to win. And then you can make an educated assessment based on the sources of where they came from about the level of intent and you will see this effect. And so the three levels of intent here, number one is low or no intent. So this would be, and I define this as based on the available first and third-party data that you have as a company, that it's reasonable and safe to assume that the buyer has low to no intent to buy right now. So, and when I think about that, here, I'll give you some examples, content syndication leads, ebook downloads that come, whether it's organic or through all of your different ad channels like LinkedIn or Google. A content download is low to no intent. There are a variety, basically, just like high performance, high volume lead gen and awareness channels would, would drive this. Also, just like picking a contact out of Zoom Info and calling them would be the same thing. There's a lot of different ways. I would argue that a lot of MQL scores are also fit into this bucket. That they're, if you actually looked at the data and assessed objectively, you would say that there's low to no intent, but you're assigning them a score because you need enough people to pass your SDRs to cold call. So you have, you have low to no intent. The next one is what I call anonymous or assumed intent. This will come through typically intent data providers where it's anonymous, it's at the account level, and you are assuming based on whatever data that they're coming through that they're actually in a buying cycle, but it's an assumption. And so this is defined as the buyer has not declared intent to you, However, you have some level of first or third party data that helps you assume that they might have some intent to buy right now. And then the third one, the most important, the most clear is declared intent. So somebody comes to you and declares intent to buy from you. Hey, I want to talk to your sales about buying this. I would like a demo. I would like pricing. And so you have those three different layers of things and it includes intent. And so what companies have right now is they have this declared intent bucket and they have uh, most other companies just have a low to no intent and they're not doing anything in the assumed intent bucket. I had somebody on the podcast today, a sales leader actually, that has made this transition and their sales team reported 300% increase in productivity. So that one will be coming out soon. But instead of having all of their SDRs call these low or no intent leads, which is cold outbound or MQL scores, they're moving to assumed intent. They're completely ditching the low to no intent, um, like cold outbound sales type of model, those people are not ready to engage in a buying process and their win rates and efficiencies are super low. So just stop focusing on them, treat them in a different way where it's more marketing, like you have a lot more work to do before you engage. So you have assumed intent and declared intent, and those are the two. And if you work down declared intent, assumed intent, low to no intent, you will see that the impact on conversion rates and sales cycle lengths are way different depending on those different stages. Declared intent being the highest win rates and the shortest sales cycles, obviously, because the buyer just came to you and said, hey, I wanna buy. Those will be the highest. Assumed intent will be significantly lower than declared, but still higher than no intent. And then you have low or no intent. And so starting to think about that in your, outreach like your outbound sales outreach when you pass leads to sales there's a a lot of different factors that you consider when you use this framework and it's what I've been been working off of for a for a long time we added the assume assumed anonymous intent here relatively recently but I think it's been very helpful for companies
2: what do you think it'll take to get more CMOs <clears throat> and cros thinking in this way
1: the big movement. I don't think that most people will move on this for a while because the change management is hard. I think that you'll see smaller companies build this the right way from the ground up, start taking market share from companies. Companies will try and respond, struggle for a long time. And some big companies will really lose. But I think it takes uh, an executive team that is Entirely focused on optimizing the buyer experience and has a ton of empathy for the way that they buy. Because companies spend all their time thinking about their sales process, about how they want to sell stuff. And one of I was in companies, I worked as employee as an employee at companies like that. And then I started thinking, but what about what's going on with our customers' buying process? What do they need to do in those different stages? How how misaligned is our sales process to their buying process? It is. Crazy how misaligned those two things are in a lot of companies. And so it takes an executive team that can recognize that, make changes, think about this in a two, three, five year window, not a three minute or three week window. And that's what it would take.
2: Yeah. And I think there's an education piece. I was on a sales call earlier today where I described the change in buying behavior. And I saw the woman's face like change as I was going through the description because she was like, well, yeah, you are right. And I never thought of it that way. So I do think that like all the work you, you know, you're know you doing and our team does on, on education, I think that that's the first step because I think people are so tunnel focused on hitting their goal and what do I have to do? And I'm just going to keep doing what I've done. So I think the education component is there, but it'll take yeah, time. The, the take challenge,
1: time. It, I think it's easy to get a head of marketing on board. I think the challenge is when this becomes a go-to-market change, not a marketing change. So you have two to three... Executive leaders and a lot of different moving parts at big organizations, and so you know the company that I talked to on the podcast, a thousand people, they made this change in less than twelve months. So it's possible. You just got to want to want to do it.
2: Definitely. You want to tackle that last agenda item before we open it up again for questions? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So <laughs> sounds good. Um, this one might be short, but it came through as a, a DM, so I figured out how to working into the agenda here, which was how to leverage communities as an acquisition channel. I answered this in a DM and I'll just reflect on what I did, what, how I answered it. So the key is that I don't see communities as an acquisition channel. I think if you look at a community as an acquisition channel, you're going to do a lot of the wrong things. And so when I think about how to leverage a community to drive impact, the things that I think about are... There's 2 main things. One is be a helpful member of the community. It's actually really hard for business sales and marketing people to do this. It's really hard to stay disciplined and be a member of the community not a vendor trying to sell stuff really hard you can see it in comments you can see it in you can see it in post behavior you can just see it it's there but the, and the second one that I talk about in communities a lot is just the idea that there's a bunch of word of mouth happening in communities that's flowing naturally, that's going to happen no matter what, where people are going to talk. And so it will work back to how to control the demand flow. You control the demand flow, you're in the thing. When people are talking about buying the category, they're asking about, did you buy you? Did you buy Gong? Did you buy this? Like, That's what they're... They're not asking, did you buy conversational intelligence? They're asking people, do you use Gong? And so that's what you, <laughs> that's what you want. I mean, that's essentially it on communities. I think that just being active in them, even like observing. So for, for me, whether it's in Revenue Collective, Dave Gerhardt's thing, Pig Community, there's plenty of them. In a lot of those communities, I'm more of an observer. My main like community would be you know the people that I post content for and engage with on LinkedIn. That's like my main channel right now, as well as all of the events that we do with people. So just being, being a member of the community, I think is a really good, good move
2: takes a long-term mindset for that to turn into, into business results, but there are also Mm -hmm. a lot of other benefits besides closing a deal for your quota, the relationship, building the networking. Mm -hmm. All right, Jonathan, I'm going to bring you on because I love your questions and I'm waiting to hear back from Steven. If he's ready to come on next, Jonathan, you're on demand gen live. Thank (laughs) you. Chris, you just went on about the um,
10: three different levels of, buyer intent. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then you talked about the um, monumental efforts of change management and moving battleships of organizations. I'm wondering if there's, because you keep trying to find ways to move people to demand gen and embracing this, this new world. From the sales side, there is a, a pending cliff that we've gone off five years ago, which was that initial contract value for SaaS vendors has plummeted since 2000. You know, Oracle used to be able to sell for tens of millions of dollars, paid up front with implementation fees. Um, Now, you know, give me your best guess for percentage of free pilots, Mm -hmm. um, at-cost proof of concepts, and then the rest falling into land and expand scenarios. So just from running a sales organization, you no longer can... Throw out a million dollar quota to a new business hunter, expect them to start closing in three months, and get up to speed uh, within two quarters, and you know drive consistent revenue. You could still have people focused on new logos, but there's just not going to be the fuel out there to feed the tanks to do the the top line growth logo grab blitzkrieg, and there just does not seem to be enough conversation and change management to address this new sales reality of day zero to year two. And I wonder if, you know, your, your three levels of buying can blend into the realities of, you know, everybody from a multi-billion dollar valued gong to early stage startups, their first sell into a Fortune 1000, a mid-tier or an SMB, is going to be 10% of the, the total uh, contract value, potential contract value of that client, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100. So so the, that the gulf that you talked about, about people before they buy, continues on until they become you know, full clients. And, and I loved uh, Arthur stepping up earlier and asking the question, then uh, saying, hey, by the way, I just did this. I'm, I'm very convinced that we're going to see a lot of moving and shaking this decade in roles and responsibilities, and and that change management has to happen because the math just doesn't work anymore. Bu- buyers have changed, information has changed, mm-hmm. how we go at them has changed, how they come at us has changed. So yeah, that that's a soapbox. That's a question. That's a, yeah. that's a ramble. I'm going to stop.
1: I was talking to a sales leader today of a more than a hundred million dollar ARR company. That is considering shutting off their cold outbound channel for 50K ACV deals or above, because you can't get CAC paybacks that make sense there anymore. So, but for companies, the only way that you can get to a place where you're like, okay, I want to shut that off is that you, if you have other multiple streams that are significantly better, and a lot of companies don't. So they're just going to keep running that thing at terrible CAC paybacks until they can raise enough money or they go out of business. If you moved, like for the, companies that do, if you move to the second level of intent, which would be assumed or anonymous intent as opposed to low intent or cold, then you'd probably get better results, which allows you to shut cold outbound off. I didn't hear a ton about like in terms of your question. I think there's a lot changing. Yeah.
10: Yeah. So, so you know, how would you see the, the, Bridging that gap, I guess. So, so what what I'm trying to do with one company that I'm working with is, they're they're solidly in that death valley of of 20k ACV to 100k ACV, where you're not going to make money on that initial sell, but building the model and the and the future sales team with with funding, so that that initial sell continues to get carried by that AE. Into year through year one into year two, mm-hmm. and building out an inbound and demand gen marketing strategy to build the feeder pool of people that are sitting right outside of starting. Um, because the solution is such that if it if it is as sticky as we think, it'll go from 40k to 100k within 12 months. If it mm-hmm. isn't, then it's not going to sell at all. But the group of of sales and marketing people are going to be working together to get them. Up to the starting line, and continue to move them through that process, and uh, along with the client success team, nothing's defined yet because we're just getting to um, our first handful of of MRR, you know, paying customers that are growing yeah. out. We're looking to build the money, but that's the the universe that we're trying to create right now. Yeah,
1: what you're talking through is a like a land and expand strategy. Yeah, essentially, right? We had had this at multiple companies that I've worked with, but at one in particular you could go into an enterprise account that is probably going to end up paying you 250 to $500,000 a year. And your first sale is like 15 grand. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you do 15 grand, you run implementation that's successful. Six months later, they make a big expansion to a Six to 12 months later, they make a big expansion to like whole house conversion. Yep. So like, yeah, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty common model. Okay. Cool, man. Thank,
5: Thank
2: you, Jonathan. Always love having you on. All right. I got a little lineup here to keep the AMA flowing. You ready for the next one, Chris?
1: Yep. Let's do it.
2: All right. Steven, you are no, up.
1: Too.
3: Hey, Chris. Hopefully you're doing all right. Thanks, Megan. Um, my question is something to do with when you ask questions of customers. I know you always talk about interviewing customers to learn about them. Trying to hear like what your top three questions would be. I'm trying to understand like the thought process.
1: I think it's, <laughs> it's really situation dependent in what types of uh, questions I'm going to ask. I'll tell you a couple of the things that I uh, definitely want to know. I want to know how they're measured. I want to know what their top organizational priorities are. I want to know the couple of things that they're really struggling with. And even if it has nothing to do with my product, those are, those are some of the things that I would do in an initial... like If you're just asking top questions, those are things that I'm going to be looking for in probably every situation. Um, because you can reverse engineer a lot from that, like metrics drive behaviors, metrics drive priorities, what are they being challenged with? It helps you understand how... Where they prioritize your solution relative to other things that they could be doing. Those are some of the things that I would think about. The next kind of layer, I'd be looking at, what do you think about the category? Where do they sit in there? Are they using us? Are they using a competitor? Are they using an alternative category to get the same thing done? Or are they just doing nothing? Like I'm going to try and figure that out. And then I'm going to try. The main part of qualitative research and the biggest value is when you get to ask why, right? So it's not like, it's nice to have the data point that says they use our competitor or they use the status quo. But what I really want to know about is why. And Uh So when you're doing the question cycles, it's like, you know, what metrics are you scored on? How do you feel about those metrics? Why do you think that those are your metrics? Do you think that those are the right metrics? What would you change them to if you had, say, right? Like it's about taking those question patterns and trying to dig deeper into what the person actually like
3: feels. Right. So if they were a customer, you might not even ask them any questions about your product.
1: From a customer standpoint, when I'm doing customer like market research it's typically when i'm relatively new in the organization and i'm trying to understand the the gaps between what customers believe and what people that don't use the product believe and then i'm trying to get in there and understand different segmentation models for customers that our company hasn't figured out yet and so because a lot of companies won't go through and a lot of mark most marketers won't go through the effort of doing that and so what they look at when they segment is oh company size industry like the basic firmographic data. And there are way better ways to segment customers than that. And so I'm looking, I'm going to look for that because then you start to figure out, okay, this is the reason why like they sell a product that costs between this and this much. This is why it's perfect for us. There's a solution that's above. They don't need anything at the bottom, but when they're right in this middle, that's why, or whatever reason that you find. And so that's, that's what I'm looking for when I do market research is the segmentation data that tries that finds the segment where you have an unfair competitive advantage.
3: Okay, great. No, I thank you for explaining. Much appreciated.
1: Cool. Thank you. Good to see you, man. Yep.
2: All right. Um, I've got Catherine. I'm going to bring you on next. I think you had a question going back to the topic
6: on communities
2: that Chris hit. You are
6: unmuted. Hello. I'm actually quite glad the swim meet was canceled. I wish I was able to come more often. (laughs) Um, It would have been the seventh swim meet in 21 days. It's insane. Anyway, yeah, it's too much. Anyway, getting back to the question, though, I'm in a lot of communities and some of them are fantastic and some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. a 1000% agree with the it's not an acquisition channel. Which communities do you think are doing well? And what are the guidelines that you would say if you were going to start a community? Obviously, this is a great one here. But if you're going to start a community, like what are the uh, essential elements that would make it a success?
1: Yeah, so I don't feel like I'm in enough of the communities or have made enough of an assessment to be like, these people are doing awesome. These people aren't. Like um, The only insights that I get are from what other people that I listen to tell me. It's a really interesting data point when 10 people tell you that this community is no longer good because of this reason. And it's the same reason that 10 people tell you that's an interesting data point. But it's not something that I source myself and it's not my thoughts. So I'm just going to kind of keep it at that. Yeah. And then what was the second part of the question? Uh, if About you were sorry, if,
6: like, obviously, I see this as a community, but if you yeah, were going too. to really go all in in a community and you were recommending for your clients or whatnot, like what would be the process you would recommend your clients to, how would they build a community in the best and optimal way?
1: So I think the the number one thing that I've been thinking about that I'm not sure a lot of other people think about is that the monetization model of the community is the reason that it breaks. And so if the community is built around charging $10 a month or a thousand dollars a month or, or whatever in order to get members in, eventually, they're going to want to scale that revenue and they're going to let more people in and the quality of people is going to degrade. There's going to be too many people in, it's going to be a bunch of noise, and then people are going to tune out. That's what happens in a lot of the... That's what a lot of people are telling me about several communities that exist right now. And so I think the key for companies is, is, one, you have an... I think you have a distinct advantage being that You don't need to monetize the community in that way. So therefore, you aren't going to run into that challenge. Therefore, you can be more segmented. If you wanted to be, you could be more selective about who you let in, which are all good ingredients to set you up for success. I like the starting point of content first, Mm -hmm. not community first i think it's the reason that it brings people together is because it's valuable and then you get the community out of it i think it's easy i think it's an easier entry point for companies mm-hmm. than trying yeah. to just pop up a slack group or something discord <laughs> or something else right so figuring out how to do that it also plays into our like con- overall content strategy and things so it works in that way as well and i think when you think about the content first it's truly about doing something that's that's valuable for people where mm-hmm. they wouldn't need to be a customer in order to get value out of it, which I think a lot of companies struggle with.
6: I'm in far too many communities. I'm inspired now to scale back on some of them. And I've made a Goldilocks analogy where some were too big and some were too slow. And I hope to find the ones that are just right. So thank you for your thoughts.
1: Mm-hmm. It's hard to find the one that just is just right. Oftentimes, yeah. you find the one that's just right for a period of time.
6: Mm-hmm. And yeah. then... Yeah.
1: that wave passes. Yeah. Yeah.
6: It evolves. Yeah.
1: It evolves. That's a good way to put it.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Cool. Good question.
2: Good to have you tonight. Hopefully you can come back <laughs> someday soon. Max, I liked your question. I want to bring you on. You are live.
11: Hey Megan. Hey Chris. How are Max,
1: you? good to have you back.
11: Thanks. So two questions about assumed intent. Um, the the first one is when you when you say assumed intent, do you mean like primarily based on data from the vendors like the Sixth Sense and Tech Targets and others, or there is something else? And then the second one is how do you draw like a clear line between no intent? And like assumed intent because it's sort of a blurry line, right? Like especially when you work with these vendors, like sometimes like the categories that they offer, you know, their data in their they're, they're too broad, so <laughs> it's not really like a one to one match for your product, and they're also not very transparent with you know how they define those models, right? Like for some of the vendors, it's like, oh, if the customer went on the web pages that have these keywords that you gave us. But I mean, we did not know the context of these keywords, right? It's like really... Oh, yeah. blurry.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. The easiest way to draw the line between these two is lead to SQL or lead to win conversion rates. It'll become clear. Between the three stages, you will get buckets of conversion rates between those two points that will show you uh, the low to no, no intent is going to be 0.1%. Somewhere around, you know, plus or minus 0.1%, but really close to that. Assumed intent's going to be slightly higher. My guess would be somewhere between two and five x higher. So you're still at a pretty low percentage point there, point, point 2. 0.5. And declared intent's going to be five to fifteen. So the the differences are large, and that's the that's the way that you could figure it out. There's two ways. One, you can look at the lead to win. If you have enough data, companies are pushing a lot of data, and you'll be able to put something together on that. The second part is making a qualitative, educated assessment where the person is coming from. I had an interesting conversation with a company earlier, uh, just a couple of days ago now. And I was like, how many demo requests do you get in a month? And they were like 300. And I was like, okay, that's good. Um, what percentage of those convert to SQO? And they said 14%. And I was like, so you're doing something here because that, not, that number should be 50 to 80%. So what are you doing to show people in demos? Because that number is way too low. And they're like, yeah, of our demos come direct response off paid LinkedIn. And so, so you see it, right? So there's a even the difference here of a, and I don't think people understand this, I'll clarify it again. If you're running an ad on a mobile device on LinkedIn, asking a CIO to click off of your ad that they've never heard of you before and convert on a, either a lead gen form, or landing page for a demo for your 50k ACV software, and you think that you're going to convert that lead into a close one deal at any level of customer acquisition cost payback that makes sense, you're wrong. And, and you can compare the outcomes of that against somebody that comes to your website on their own through certain channels that indicate that they intended to land on your website specifically, that they had intent to find you, and then they go and convert and you're going to get like I said, five to fifteen percent and point one percent. A direct response demo lead from LinkedIn. I put in the in the low intent category. So that's kind of like the 2.0 on intent. Like the referral source, like a, a demo is one part of it, but the referral source of the traffic is a huge indicator of that. And so you can look through a bunch of data, you know, content syndication. This person was on my, you know, somebody else's website filled out this form. It gets pushed into my CRM. Like what's the, what's my qualitative assessment on the level of that buyer's intent to buy our stuff. So low, you know, <laughs> so that's the, uh, that's some of the ways that I think about it. I think quantitative lead to win lead test QO is a good one. And then qualitative, like what's my assessment of the level of intent based on, the path that this person took to get to us so that we could start this opportunity. Thanks, Chris. Cool. Good question, Max.
2: Yeah. Great question. All right. Lorenz, your name is pretty cool. The questions
1: are rolling.
2: I know. Lawrence, you are live. All right. Hey again. Hey, Chris. Going back to the
12: initial topic uh, around uh, controlling the flow of demand, mm-hmm. uh, we're kind of in this this position ourselves right now. We've got a, a mature product, like ten years in, it's doing great. But then it's a SaaS. We've added other uh, features, functionality, use cases, and mm-hmm. those ones aren't as kind of obvious to sell. Uh, we're we're falling to a category where there's less demand. We see it through search volume. It's uh, it's a little bit lower uh we're selling to the same target audience uh, b2b yeah just wondering like we have got like our ideas where to start but curious to see your take like where would you start if you kind of like started you you needed to start to take that opportunity to to be the ones uh controlling the flow of demand for for a category
1: um so let me just make sure i understand what you're talking about i'll use an example so for people sure. understand so in this example the company that's been around for 10 years is Salesforce. Okay. And then you're building extension products like CPQ and e and other products. Am I getting that right? Or am yeah, I? Yeah, pretty
12: much. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. We're, we're selling to, just to be more precise, we're, we're, we're selling to IT teams. Uh, and essentially we're, we're still selling to IT administrators, but we're helping them do different things and kind of like their, their day-to-day job. So the things that we're trying to sell now, uh, there's, a little more education to do around it. Like it's like going back to your toothpaste example. It's like they, those people don't know that they don't need to brush their teeth. Obviously they they do, but uh, you you get what I'm saying. We we need Mm -hmm. to kind of like educate them on the need for the product. We see that there's interest for the product, but yeah, it's just a matter of, of, of generating that demand for those new kind of functionalities for for the product.
1: Yeah. There's established demand flowing for your core product, but not as much demand for the extension products, which is going to fuel growth now that the original category is mature. Exactly. Yeah. So the solution here is to control the flow of demand for the, the extension products to make people seek them out on their own. And so the way that you do that is companies will typically like, and I'm sure at this point now, you can just like, you can sit back and wait for the demand, right? And a lot of a lot of enterprise companies fall into this bucket, which is why I highly suggest that most people that are listening to this podcast do not get advice from enterprise companies because they're in a mature category with an established brand. And that does not translate to your 30K or $30 million ARR SaaS business. And so you're not gonna be able to just sit and wait these things to happen so there's a couple options of what's going to happen somebody else that sells a similar product is going to create demand for that thing and then you can try and just like fight over and steal a little bit of what they've created but the way more advantageous position again is to go out and create it yourself so when you create it you need to have a a content strategy to educate people you need to have a clear understanding about who those people are you need to have a clear understanding about how you're going to be able to deliver them information so they actually consume it in a way that they like and so that's some mm-hmm. of the things that I would think about in the education phase like you need to evangelize the idea of what you're doing not the product it's kind of like what we we're doing at Refine yeah. Labs like I'm basically helping companies understand that you need to go out and create demand the days of sitting back and wait waiting for someone to search you and run your HubSpot strategy are long over. You need to go out and create demand for your product and your category if you want to win today. And that's basically what I'm evangelizing. We talked very little about Refine Labs, actually. And I think that's what that's something that you want to mirror. So what's the thing that people need to do that you're like offering as a category or a top-level name that's not branded versus what they do right now? Okay. No, that makes sense. Let's, let's go through it. We can work through this entire example. So what would you classify as the category of what your one of the extension products you're selling?
12: We're we, we do um, let's say uh, we're in the Microsoft uh, industry or so we're a kind of like a third party vendor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sell um, let's say a Microsoft 365 governance, for instance, is the
1: new the new tool that we're that we're selling. Okay, so you're a Microsoft reseller.
12: Well, we're not a reseller. We're an independent software vendor. So essentially, mm-hmm. our products kind of like. Bundle over what Microsoft offers yeah. to add okay. functionality.
1: Yeah, like an, ad, like an add-on to Microsoft products. Right, exactly. Okay, great. Yeah, so, and then what are people doing right now? Like, without your product, with this the governance add-on, what are they doing?
12: They use stuff that Microsoft has kind of out, out of the box that kind of falls short to what they're, what they're trying to do, uh, or they just kind of suffer the consequences of, of not doing proper governance.
1: Yeah. So I think you need to educate people on a couple of things. Think you need to educate people on the gaps of what Microsoft's products are that expose them to risks or, you know, prevent them from capitalizing opportunities. And people need to understand that. Just like I educate people on why lead gen is so inefficient, right? Because then yeah. all, I'm just telling people the truth and helping them see what's, what's already happening. So you need to figure out how to get people to understand what's already happening about um, either the Microsoft part or if they're not taking care of their governance, what what the situation is on that and present them with a a better thing to do. The secondary part from a business strategy perspective that I would offer is I don't know if the path is to eventually get acquired by Microsoft, but this is like a pretty pure play like licensing or OEM potential play too. It's more of a business strategy recommendation, yeah. but it's possible too. I'm not,
12: I'm, not, I, I'm not in those discussions, so I, I wouldn't know,
1: but <laughs> yeah. Cool. It's a tough spot to be in because they already buy Microsoft and Microsoft packages it, and there's a massive category leader type of feeling when they buy a lot of companies buy that brand. Right. Um, it's going to take a strong strategy and Probably like we talked about segmenting customers, like when you're competing with a massive giant, you need to find a segment that either that company doesn't serve well, is not paying attention to, or where you definitely will win. And a lot of companies struggle to make that choice because it makes their it makes their available market smaller in the short term. But it's the winning formula. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Cool. Cool, thank you. Good to see you, man. Have a good yeah, night. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Lauren. All right, another one of my favorites, Bob. I'm bringing you on. Mm -hmm. He had a follow-up question to one of the points you made earlier about demo requests.
0: Yeah. Hey, Chris, I just wanted to better understand what you were saying there because my whole playbook right now is uh, paid Facebook to contact or demo Mm requests. On our site, I've asked you previously what were good numbers for contact request response rate because my CEO has always been disappointed with our contact response rate, but we're at 60% contact response rate, meaning they've submitted a contact form and they actually respond to my follow-up phone calls or emails.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And we're converting out of that 30% to book demos. But I found the direct book demo, like I have a calendar link right to my, my calendar. They can schedule a demo. That actually currently has been our highest intent. I mean, I have a long sales cycle here, 12 months plus mm-hmm. on average. So the paid social you know, it's been like, it's it's almost a one month sales cycle. It's like 10x better than what I've been able to track on average since I joined mm. the company. So to me, it's been like, that's my whole playbook. So I want to better understand what you're saying that it's low intent, because maybe there's something else I could be doing that's higher intent. Or does it apply differently to paid Facebook when you've been running this in aggregate over a long period of time and kind of reverse engineering that sales message over time?
1: Yeah, actually, um. Direct. I've I've never seen it work in like multi-stakeholder complex B2B sale. It's possible that some of your deals you're basically selling to one stakeholder, which may make it interesting. There's another thing that I've been seeing where there are certain offers where it's basically like partner with us and you'll you'll make more money or do this, like and you'll get fifty thousand dollars. Like take advantage of these tax credits is one that I'm seeing a lot where it's basically like free money. I'm not sure if you're in that situation, but I feel like you are kind of a revenue-generating product. For, and there's a-
0: For a primary stakeholder, like the owner of an optical retailer is the person who's on Facebook, seeing the ad, requesting the demo. So it's it's pretty much a one-on-one sales process mm-hmm. once you get to that key decision maker. So then in that instance, it's different than what you were talking. So I wasn't understanding what you were saying before. You were talking about... Um, multi-stakeholder complex sale across the big organization?
1: Yeah, I mean, not even like a big organization. You could be buying 30K ACV, ACV SaaS and still like like several people are involved in tech integrations. It gets complex pretty quickly with with software purchases that are not like free trial, single user. So that's some of the information that we have. I'm actually surprised how like strong the contact requests are. A, a couple other variables that might influence this are perhaps you're a lot more direct about what they're getting in the ads that could be one perhaps your follow-up time is strong stronger than others but i think that software companies do this right like i think a lot of companies when they're running this do strive to follow up within five or ten minutes and still see these really poor conversion rates and so i think that whatever you're doing is working but i want people that are listening to understand that it's definitely an outlier based on my experience
0: okay I right, appreciate
1: it. Thank you. Yeah, if it's working, keep doing it. Means
0: you're I mean, you, you, extraordinary, Bob. <laughs> the, the messaging is now on point, and the, um, <laughs> the targeting is is on point. But no, and from a serious standpoint, um, it is. You know, MySpace is healthcare targeting. You know, a business owner specifically, and mm-hmm. while there may be multiple people involved in an in implementation, ultimately it really is. I'm I'm dealing pretty much one on one or one on two with the, the the business owner and their manager. So it's I I joke, it's beyond a complex sale. It's a very complicated sale, but it is only with one or two stakeholders within an organization. So that's probably the reason. And Mm -hmm. the the messaging is pretty much all about increase your revenue with our solution. So it's getting that key decision maker to take some action. So maybe that's the reason.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. There, I mean, there's a lot of companies that I've audited that sell like $4,000 deals that are single stakeholder that still can't get this done, at least at a level where you know, you're not spending $20,000 to acquire a $4,000 year customer. So, yeah,
0: no, it's interesting. I mean, our, our is. annual, our upfront contract value is like 75 K on average, uh, but you know, it's equipment for their offices. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's not B2B SaaS, but we're also saw software and they are a business. So I joke that it's kind of B2B SaaS, but <laughs> it's still in, it's telehealth. So it's yeah. a different solution. So no, definitely appreciate your insights. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Bob.
2: All right. I'm all tapped out of questions. All so, right. Closing thoughts for us tonight, Chris.
1: So I'm going to keep going on the demand flow. So expect that in future episodes. I think there's a lot to learn there. I think there's a lot of layers to feel back. I introduced the concept today just about how it works. Like, have I told this story on the podcast where I just woke up that random Friday? I don't think no, I, I, don't think on the I woke up some random Friday at three in the morning. Couldn't go back to sleep. Like, <laughs> walked around for a little while was totally unproductive. It was like five in the morning. I got back and I just like, I don't know, something hit. And I just sat down and typed on my computer and wrote diagrams and drawings and came out with like a 26-page document of like, this is what's going on. It was pretty cool. We're going we're gonna to publish it in the future. And part of it was like, the, one of the main introductory points that I'd never explained before is like, this is how demand flows. There are people, something happens, then they move into buying cycles. You need to figure out what to, how to be that thing that moves them into a buying cycle. <laughs> and so I think there's a lot more that we can think about and talk through at an executional level, but we set a good foundation. And um, always great to have everyone here. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we'll see you next Tuesday. See you next
2: Tuesday, everyone. Have a good
1: night. Bye, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you. And see you for the next episode.